it's Tuesday, the 22nd of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The UN Security Council has once again failed to agree on a response to North Korea's latest ICBM launch, with China and Russia vetoing further sanctions. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. COP27 wrapped up on Sunday with an agreement for a loss and damage fund to assist countries vulnerable to climate disasters. We'll look closer at the outcomes from the climate summit for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hall, we speak to the director and producer that brought Kwangju the musical to Broadway recently for a special one-off concert. Let's begin, Korea 24. Mr. President, the Secretary General has strongly condemned the DPRK's latest intercontinental ballistic missile launch, the second ICBM launch this month. The UN Under Secretary General Rosemary DiCarlo addressed representatives of the United Nations Security Council. The meeting was convened on Monday local time to forge a united front against North Korea for its flagrant disregard of UNSC resolutions that banned ballistic missile testing. But yet again, it was derailed by opposition from veto-holding members. Russia and China. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined on the line by KBS World Radio News Editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello, Chang'o. So the UNSC meeting was convened to address North Korea's latest launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile last Friday, but it failed to take action as China and Russia expressed their opposition to toughening UN sanctions. So what did they have to say? Right. So there had been interest in whether we might see any shift in Beijing's position, given Chinese President Xi Jinping's face-to-face meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden, as well as other leaders in the summits of Southeast Asia in recent weeks. Also notable is that this is the first time North Korea's Hwasong-17 ICBM, uh, also known as the monster missile, was assessed to be a success, thereby putting the whole of North America within range. While Western powers including the U.S. and key European nations, as well as South Korea and Japan at the U.N. meeting, strongly condemned North Korea. China and Russia reiterated their position that Washington is to blame for the North's armed provocations, citing the joint military exercises that has conducted with allies South Korea and Japan. Let's take a listen to America's ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, followed by the Russian ambassador, Anna Evstigneva. 63 times this year, the DPRK has flagrantly violated Security Council resolutions and attempted to undermine the global nonproliferation regime. 63 times this year, the DPRK has shown an utter disregard for the safety and security of the region and a complete lack of respect to this council. A further escalation of sanctions against the DPRK, however, already goes beyond measures to counter prohibitive missile and nuclear programs and threatens North Korean citizens with unacceptable socioeconomic and humanitarian upheaval. 
And as a side note, North Korean state TV, the day after its ICBM missile launch, uh, did air theatrically edited footage of the launch saying that the weapon armed with the North Korean people's pent-up hatred towards the U.S. would put an end to a history of shame. Now, this is known to be the 10th UN meeting called on North Korea's military action this year alone, a point not lost on the South Korean ambassador. Yeah, that's right. South Korea's UN ambassador Hwang Chun-guk argued that the Kim Jong-un regime was taking advantage of the division within the UN Security Council. Beijing and Moscow have refused to penalize North Korea any further since May. Take a listen. We have witnessed how the DPRK is fully taking advantage of the Council's inaction and divisions to build up its nuclear arsenal. Since the Security Council failed to adopt a resolution because of the opposition by two permanent members in May, the DPRK has launched 40 ballistic missiles and promulgated its new law on nuclear weapons. Following the open session, the U.S. ambassador, joined by her peers from 13 other countries, including South Korea, once again read out a joint statement urging North Korea to, quote, abandon its unlawful weapons programs in a complete, verifiable and irreversible manner. And we're just getting some breaking news now. Kim Yo-jong, the powerful sister of Kim Jong-un, has issued a statement. According to the North state media, she said North Korea strongly condemns the UNSC's double standard and that they will continue their strong response to the end. Uh, we'll perhaps talk more about this on tomorrow's show. But for now, that is uh, what the North's response is so far. Meanwhile, the vice foreign ministers of South Korea, the US and Japan discussed their own responses uh, as they condemned North Korea's latest intercontinental uh, ballistic missile launch. Can you tell us more? Indeed. According to the foreign ministry here in Seoul on Tuesday, first vice foreign minister Cho Hyun-dong held a three-way phone conversation with U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and Japanese vice foreign minister Takeo Mori. The three vice ministers reaffirmed the importance of their trilateral cooperation in responding to Pyongyang's illegal and dangerous acts. They agreed to respond to such provocations by reinforcing Seoul and Washington's combined defense posture and their three-way security cooperation. The three officials also agreed to seek additional measures, likely in the form of unilateral sanctions, apart from steps taken at the UN Security Council. Let's uh, leave that there and turn now to domestic headlines, uh, specifically updates on the Halloween Itaewon crowd crush tragedy. The presidential office is reportedly considering enacting a special law in order to compensate the victims and their families. Uh, What more can you tell us? Yeah, this comes to us by way of Yonap News Agency, which reported that a senior presidential official told its journalist on Tuesday as such, adding that those found responsible for the tragedy will be dealt with under existing laws, while this special law will offer supplementary support. Such consideration is being made as the families of those killed and others injured are highly likely to win should they file a damages suit against the government. The presidential office, however, plans to wait for the pending results of the ongoing police probe. The special investigative headquarters is expected to decide on the fate of those responsible as early as this week. 
Meanwhile, a group of bereaved family members took part in a joint press conference for the first time. They urged the government to draft preventative measures and punish those responsible. Mm-hmm. The media gathering was organized by a fact-finding and legal assistance task force set up by the civic group called Mindyeon, or Lawyers for a Democratic Society, 24 days after that tragic accident. One father who lost his daughter said the disaster stems from a failure to manage a crowd of 130,000 that had gathered that night. He criticized the police's failure to mobilize a special response team that day as evidence of their lack of concern for the safety of ordinary citizens. A bereaved mother showing her son's death certificate said she is not able to send off her son without knowing when, where, and how he died. Since setting up this task force, Minbyan has been legally representing the families of 34 victims and has devised a list of demands from the government, including a sincere apology, proactive support for victims, and holding those responsible to account. One lawyer from that group said an announcement on legal measures to be pursued will be forthcoming after consulting with the families. Moving on, unionized truckers have announced a walkout later this week. And ahead of it, the ruling People Power Party and government officials met to discuss what they can offer to avoid the strike. So what's the latest on this? Yeah, so the strike uh, for unionized truck drivers is planned for Thursday. The prime minister as well as the PPP's policy chief urging the truckers to withdraw their planned general strike. The latter saying that it is expected to have a significant impact to the domestic economy amid ongoing risks, of course, including inflation and interest rate hikes. At their meeting on Tuesday, the ruling PPP and the government agreed to extend the safe trucking uh, freight rate system by three years. That system is aimed at preventing dangerous driving conditions by guaranteeing minimum freight rates. PPP Policy Chief Song Yu-jong explained that the extension was agreed in consideration of high energy costs and opinions from those affected by the policy. Song said, however, that the PPP and the government decided they could not accept the cargo truck truckers solidarities call for the system's expansion into other areas such as steel tanker trucks and automobiles on the basis that increased logistics costs would be borne by the public okay we'll leave it there for our news briefing today thank you for those updates Eunice you bet The 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, closed on Sunday after a 14-day run in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Officials from some 200 countries made headway with an agreement to establish a loss and damage fund to assist countries most vulnerable to climate disasters. While the agreement was held as historic by some, the summit talks ended in discord after negotiators failed to agree on phasing down the use of all fossil fuels. 
to talk about the agreement reached and what it means for the global fight against the climate crisis. We have joining us on the line now Professor Brendan Mackey, Director of the Griffith Climate Change Response Programme at Griffith University in Australia. Professor, hello and thank you for your time. Yes, good to be speaking to you. So first off, what was your overall assessment of the summit and this agreement? How significant was it? Well, every, every COP for the climate change treaty negotiations is important. And every time it successfully concludes with uh, an approved um, set of decisions, uh, you know, it's something to um, celebrate in that respect. I, I just, I'll just make the point because it's a very hard thing to accomplish. The protocol is that the COP decisions are agreed to by consensus and that means that every single country there has to agree. And this is why the negotiations are so difficult because it only needs one country to hold out to tip over the, the apple barrel, so to speak. Mm. So, you know, as a general overview uh, kind of comment, yes, it's good we got a plan agreed to. Right, so it is quite a diplomatic challenge to get everyone uh, on board, essentially. Uh, Absolutely, yes. So loss and damage uh, made it onto the agenda for the first time in Egypt, but this uh, issue was first raised by uh, climate-vulnerable countries three decades ago. Can you explain a bit more uh, about this issue for us and what took so long to uh, make progress on such uh, a fund? Yes, so this is... um been a very controversial issue because for a number of reasons. One reason is there's been a lot of debate about whether we're talking about climate reparations, i.e. who's liable for loss and damage, and whether this is referring to compensation for past harm, or whether we're only referring to payments for kind of current unavoidable climate impacts. So so one of the reasons we finally got agreement on loss and damage is that there is basically the consensus was that we're not talking about compensation for past harm. We're really referring to payments for impacts that are happening now and, and, and that will happen in, into the future. And, and this is in addition to the climate finance that's already been agreed to for adaptation, i.e. helping countries adapt to the impacts of a rapidly changing climate. Mm. So there's been decades, decades of, debate, of debate around defining what the term means and what exactly the payments would be for. Right, so it's uh, essentially about perhaps sharing the cost. Uh, however, negotiators have yet to settle on what kind of climate change-related disasters will be eligible and how financing will be split among uh, contributing countries. And this is an aspect that has received uh, quite a bit of uh, criticism. Uh, The text of the agreement leaves open the crucial details to be worked out next year and beyond. Uh, Professor, what do you make of the criticism and how do you think the negotiations will pan out in the future? Well, uh, I think it's important to recognise that the loss and damage finance... so, So... it's agreed there will be some kind of fund set up and some kind of finance, financial mechanism to, uh, as I say, pay um, for, the, for the loss and damage. 
um, from ongoing climate change impacts, the, the unavoidable ones. Now, that's actually one of three uh, uh, climate fin fi financial mechanisms and funds that that um, uh, are now part of the package. So mm. there's also a, a green climate fund for, for an enabling developing countries to um, adapt to climate change to avoid the worst of the impacts and try and avoid loss and damage in the first place, and also to to leapfrog fossil fuel energy sources and go direct to clean energy. And there's a commitment in the Paris Agreement to to make available a hundred billion US dollars a year every year for that. And and there's another uh, amount of money uh, that people are talking about, which is you know globally to transform to a low-carbon economy, we're talking about four to six trillion million dollars a year. So the the uh, climate loss and damage fund is a significant development, but it complements these two existing funds. And that's why another important decision in this plan was actually recognition and a call for transformation of the entire financial system, including the World Bank because we're, we're just going to have to start mobilising really significant amounts of finance for all these climate-related challenges. Mm. Uh, still, but what do you make of the criticism that uh, perhaps, uh, although this, uh, as we said, it is perhaps something to celebrate that uh, a progress was made, uh, people have said perhaps it doesn't go far, far enough and that it's just a, looks like empty promises for now? Well, it, I guess it's, you know... It's true we did not get uh, anything more concrete or specific than finally um, accepting that loss and damage is part of the climate finance landscape and there will be a fund set up. So people are correct in being disappointed that more was not agreed to uh, and the nuts and bolts of it and and indeed raising the actual funds themselves all, all lies ahead of us. Hmm. So perhaps so it's a valid, you know, it's a valid criticism for sure. But yeah. Uh, but you're saying uh, let's perhaps look at the positives and see this as a first step to uh, a bigger goal than perhaps. Well, it it means now, uh, you know, the the fund is activated and the finances can be raised. Mm -hmm. But you know, actually, you know, let's not underestimate the challenge of actually getting countries to meet their commitments. As I said in the Paris Agreement. There's already on the table a commitment by developed countries to raise $100 billion a year every year for climate adaptation of the Green Climate Climate Fund. And so far, they've only raised about $10 billion mm. one year. Right? So there's still a huge gap between government's commitments and the implementation of, of those commitments when it comes to climate finance. I see. Uh in the summit as well, they reaffirmed the goal of keeping global warming to below uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Uh, but again, there were details that seemed to fall short. Negotiators uh, failed to agree to emissions cuts and uh, a phase-out of all fossil fuels due to resistance, particularly from uh, oil-producing states. First, and perhaps this is the most fundamental question, Professor, do you think the 1.5 degree target is still achievable? Well, what the text actually says is limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. And the reason for that specific language is we are going to hit 1.5 degrees. The, 
The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change latest report, makes it clear that we're currently at 1.1 degree, warming above pre-industrial levels, and there is another 0.4 degrees locked in, and we're going to reach it in about eight years' time. So, so the question is, how close to 1.5 degree can we keep global warming? Because every increment of global warming, every 0.1 represents a massive, a massive amount of climate change and a, and a big increase in climate risks. So we aren't going to... We, we are unable to stop global warming reaching 1.5 degrees, but we can certainly, if we take action now, keep it very close to that and, and limit it from going much further. So all of that is still very possible. Okay, that's encouraging to hear. But uh, I guess uh, the point is uh, we have to take action now. How concerning was it that perhaps uh, no deal was made on the emissions cuts and fossil fuels phase out at the uh, climate talks this year? Yeah, that's very dis- disappointed. At the, uh, you know, there there is the the relevant text in the document. Um, I can read it out. It says that uh, accelerate efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power and phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Now, one of the problems with that, I've described it as mealy-mouthed because um, technically I would argue there's no such thing as unabated coal power. All, all coal power is emissive. Mm. Unab- uh, you know, uh, uh, abated coal power means we have um, cost-effective carbon capture and storage, which we don't. So, and and... Inefficient phasing out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, I'm sure you'd be hard pressed to find an economist who would say that there's such a thing as efficient fossil fuel subsidies. So really, uh, that text was just copied and pasted from last year's Glasgow Climate Agreement. So we haven't really made any progress on getting uh, language that that reflects what the science is telling us we need to do, which is rapidly transit economies out of all fossil fuel sources, coal, oil and gas, as quickly as possible to clean energy sources. Uh, Another concern is that next year's UN Climate Summit will be hosted by a petro state, the United Arab Emirates. So it's uh, perhaps hard to see uh, how a crackdown on fossil fuels uh, will happen there either. Well, that that, uh, is all to come next year. And of course, the host country, the host country is the host, and is meant to be merely facilitating con- consensus. But you know, I think um, you're right in saying that a, a, a petrol-based um, state such as that host will will make uh, for interesting um, discussions. Uh, there's another there's another decision in the in in the outcomes document for COP27 which actually acknowledges the science. It, it says that to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees requires rapid, deep and sustained reduction in greenhouse gas emissions of 43% by 2030 relative to 2019 levels. So, so the, the, the governments did agree with the science. They are saying they accept the science that we've got to reduce emissions by, by another 43% in eight years' time relative to what it was only a couple of years ago. Mm. And now the only way you can do that, the only way you can do it, is by phasing out using coal and oil and gas 
very quickly. There is no other way of achieving that goal. So it's interesting the the um, the outcome of COP27 kind of contains those two competing statements in a way. Mm, indeed. Okay. Well, I guess we'll see, uh, as you said, uh, the outcomes of next year's summit uh, when it does happen. Uh, as a final thought as well, Professor, South Korea, the world's 11th largest greenhouse gas emitter, is not among uh, countries that were obligated to pay vulnerable countries for damages caused by climate change under the aforementioned agreement. This is because uh, South Korea is not classed as a developed nation under the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, what do you make of uh, this, these details and what do you think needs to be done by South Korea in the global fight against climate change? Yeah, so as you point out, the classification of countries into developed, this binary category of developed and developing was, was um, sensible back in 1992. But of course, since then, we've had 40 years of economic development around the world. And there's a number of countries who, are, who if we were classifying that today, um, classifying countries today would be classified as, as economically developed. And, and South Korea, no, no doubt, would be one. But look, if you look at the, if you look at the facts of the matter, um, uh, you know, 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from 15 countries um, plus the EU27 countries. And, and of course, one of those additional 15 to the EU27 is Australia, where I'm from, and another is, uh, is, is South Korea, and another is Indonesia, etc. So if we're serious about solving the climate change problem, uh, the major greenhouse gas emitters, which I would suggest are the ones that are responsible for 80% of the emissions, EU27 plus the other 15. That includes Australia. It includes South Korea. It includes Indonesia. It includes India. Certainly includes China. China is responsible for 30% of the emissions now. It's it's really up to those big emitting countries to take the lead in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And also, if we look at the G7 and the G20 countries, the wealthy country, the wealthier the countries are, the more responsibility they have for helping the poorer countries. So whatever we um, decided back in 1992, those countries that have the economic wealth now, um, they've got a responsibility to both show the way in, in reducing their emissions and helping those more vulnerable poor countries coping with the, the impacts of a climate-changed world. Right, so perhaps uh, South Korea uh, will need to reflect on its own role and responsibility itself in the fight against climate change. Professor, we'll have to leave it there. We appreciate your time today. We've been speaking to Professor Brendan Mackey from Griffith University in Australia. Thank you for speaking to us today. You're welcome. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 14.23 points, or 0.59% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,405.27. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 6.31 points, or 0.88%, to close at 712.26. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.91 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,356.61. 
You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we have our contributor Diane Yu with us in the studio, which means it's time now for our daily segment, Korea Trending. Here we round up some of the other news stories that have been trending online today. Diane, hello. It's uh, good to see you again. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you again. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll go over the news of child sex offender Cho Dusun's upcoming move in Ansanshi, Gyeonggi province. Next, we'll also take a look at how a confectionery company is currently under fire for mishandling a customer's complaints. And we'll end with why Iran's national soccer team refused to sing the national anthem at the World Cup. Okay, so we start with news about a story of an ex-convict who we have talked about on the show several times Mm -hmm. before. Can you tell us more? It's been revealed that the notorious child sex offender Cho Dusun is moving home once the lease contract for his current house in Wadong, Ansanshi, expires. According to Ansan City on Tuesday, Cho's rental contract for a room in a residential building in Wadong, where he has lived since being released from prison in December 2020, expires on the 28th of this month. He is scheduled to move to the nearby neighborhood of Sonbudong. However, due to preparations for moving, Joe conveyed to the landlord that he would not be able to move on the day the contract ends. Yes, there was a lot of concern when Cho was first released from prison two years ago, especially mm-hmm. uh, because he was returning to Ansan where he lived before right. and where he had kidnapped and committed the terrible sexual and physical assault of a uh, young girl. Mm-hmm. There were protests outside his house for a very long time, and not just Cho, but his wife has also been the target of harassment, right? Right, uh, because information about both him and his wife is shared between realtors. For the current house, the building owner strongly demanded Cho leave when the two-year contract expired, so they were not able to renew the contract. He then had to look for another house to live in. Initially, Cho signed the lease in his wife's name for a place in the city's Gojandong at the beginning of this month, but the landlord later cancelled the contract after learning that he was actually moving in. He, his new house in Sonbudong is located in a residential area with a similar environment to where he used to live and is only three kilometers away. Right, and as we said, when he first returned to Anshan, there were protests and resistance from the local community. Are there similar concerns about Cho moving to this new area? Right, especially since there's an elementary school just 300 metres away. Uh, to ease residents' concern and for any kind of emergency, Ansan City is planning to move the currently operating crime prevention patrol and surveillance function to his new residential area. The city decided to relocate two patrol posts to Sambudong and divide nine well-trained police officers into three groups to patrol 24 hours a day. On top of that, 10 additional surveillance cameras will be installed in a 50-meter radius of his new house, in addition to the current 50 that are already installed. The city also plans to monitor Cho's whereabouts 24 hours a day and share information with the Ministry of Justice and the police. Yes, I doubt that will ease the worries of the local residents, but uh, we'll see if he does manage to move, especially as there is so much uh, focus and public attention Mm -hmm. on this situation once again. Okay, let's continue on to our second story now. 
What do you have for us? The way Lotte Confectionery, one of the biggest South Korean confectionery companies, handled its customers' complaints has stirred some controversy around the nation. On November 11th, a stay-at-home mother bought a gift box of the company's Peppero chocolate snack at a convenience store. As the box said, it contained stickers of a famous cartoon character. But when she opened the box, it had a different type of Peppero from what the packaging said and no stickers. She was able to get in touch with the snack and food company's customer services and was told that they would send her, send her another box to her house as she wasn't able to go to the store again due to a leg injury she sustained recently. However, when she received and opened the box, she couldn't believe what she saw. The stickers were found inside none other than a funeral condolence envelope. Wow, okay, so a funeral condolence envelope. So uh, in Korea, uh, just to let our listeners know, it's customary to give condolence money to the deceased family at a funeral. And that money is usually put in an envelope with uh, certain Chinese characters on the front Mm -hmm. marking that. So it must have been quite shocking for the woman to receive it. How did she react? So she said that she was scared and her hands shook as she was holding the envelope with Pui written on the front. Pui is an expression that means money or items that are given to the deceased family. Because she was getting treatment at a hospital for her severely injured leg after a recent accident, the condolence envelope only looked more ominous. Her husband was furious as well and filed another complaint to the company saying, quote unquote, sending the envelope knowing her health conditions seems like they're telling her to die. It's just not un- Understandable. Indeed, it is uh, very shocking indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, has the company given any statement or explanation about what happened? Regarding this incident, a Lotte confectionery personnel said, quote-unquote, there was absolutely no malice and it was a simple mistake. We apologized to the customer. It happened because the team couldn't properly check whether it was a blank envelope or not. Uh, the company also said it would like to meet the customer in person to apologize for hurting their feelings. Hmm, Yes, that's uh, the least they can do, I suspect. Hopefully it was just a very, very unfortunate error Mm -hmm. and it wasn't uh, intentional. Okay, let's move on now to our last story for today. What do you have for us? Iran soccer players appeared silent and stone-faced as their country's national anthem was played at the World Cup on Monday to show solidarity with the protest movement that has rattled the country for months. The movement of silence took place prior to Iran's group's B match against England at Khalifa International Stadium in Qatar on the 21st local time. Iranian state television stopped broadcasting the match live in response to the players' action. Yes, we have briefly mentioned what has been going on in Iran uh, on our show before. Civil unrest has caused clashes between uh, citizens and the country's regime. Uh, For our listeners who may not know, can you remind us of how it all started? So the anti-government protests have been going on in the country since mid-September. The unrest began after a 22-year-old woman, Masha Amini, died while in the custody of the morality police. Protests have since spread across the country, challenging the authority of the government, even as security forces have aggressively responded to break the movement. According to the activist news agency HRANA, as of Friday, 410 protesters had been killed in the unrest, including 58 minors. And now the protests have morphed into broader calls to overthrow the Islamic leadership. Now, this is not the first time the football team showed their support for the protesters, right? Right. In late September, the team opted to wear black jackets to cover the country's colours in their friendly against Senegal. And on Sunday, Iran defender Hassan Hajsafi openly expressed his advocacy for the protesters back home at a press conference saying, quote-unquote, 
they should know what we are uh, they should know that we are with them and we support them we and we emphasize uh, we sympathize with them regarding the conditions unquote mm. he added that we have to accept the conditions in our country are not right and our people are not happy and the move to defend the protesters not stop at soccer. Several other Iranian sports teams have been uh, have been seen refusing to sing the national anthem before or after events, including the beach football, water polo, and basketball teams. Right, but the World Cup is, of course, one of the biggest sporting stages in the world. Right. So it was quite a quietly powerful image. Mm-hmm. We'll wrap it up there for our career trending segment today. Thank you for bringing us those stories there, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, John. We'll see you then. In October, a special English adaptation of a Korean musical depicting the Gwangju democratization movement was shown to audiences in Broadway, New York for the first time. Gwangju, the musical, originally produced by the Culture Ministry and Gwangju Metropolitan City, was turned into a one-hour gala concert by the New York-based creative director and producer Andrew Rasmussen. And... Mr. Rasmussen joins us via video now for this week's Touch Base in Seoul. Tell us more about how he came to collaborate on the show. Mr. Rasmussen, hello, and thank you for connecting with us today. Thank you. So could you first tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, You are a director and creative producer based in New York, as I mentioned, and I understand that you have been involved in the industry uh, for over 20 years now. Yeah, uh, I've been a New York director, producer, Um, All around the world, quite a bit. Uh, I have quite an international career as an associate director with uh, Broadway production companies. Um, Anything from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in Japan to a circus in China. Um, And uh, my original projects have appeared off-Broadway and on international tour. Okay, so a long... A successful international career as well, it seems, in the industry. But it is one of your more recent uh, collaborations that caught our eye. Uh, it was the Broadway showcase of Gwangju the Musical in October. Uh, can you tell us more about how you got involved in this project? Uh, I was approached by Demo Kim, who is a producer, who a Korean producer who produces between New York and Korea, Um, And uh, on behalf of the Gwangju Foundation and our international partners uh, live, um, we decided to do a American version, an English translation of the musical that has been playing in Korea for the past three years. Sure. We've actually had Demo Kim on the show uh, before as well. He's been doing a lot uh, in Korea. Yes. Uh, So when you were approached to do the musical, uh, what did you first think? Uh, at first I thought, wow, this is in- incredibly complex and rich and deep and harrowing. Um, and I said, I immediately said, I have to do this. Mm. Uh, wh- why did you feel you had because, to do this? Uh, I think so much in our business, we're always looking for something 
that really strikes us. And this musical is striking. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And it's really poignant to today mm. um, on an international level, I'd say. Uh, how much uh, did you know about the history uh, behind the musical before it before it came to you? Uh, very little. I, I knew very little of the history uh, before. Um, and certainly I... I bring my Western perspective of musical theater and storytelling. Um, and I, I like to think of myself as the party bus driver uh, and bringing, bringing party guests to, to the table. Mm. So it's a great learning experience um, for all of us to join. And so that, that is how I approach a show as well. Mm. Um, so diving into the history, into the stories, into um, sharing with one another, it was a really great um, adventure. Sure. It is uh, a very dark period in Korea's modern history, of course, just to provide some context for our listeners uh, who might be unaware. The Gwangju democratization movement, also known as the Gwangju uprising, uh, took place in May 1980. It began as a, a protest, a pro-democracy protest, uh, after General Chun Doo-hwan seized power via a military coup. But then the uh, Chun government carried out a deadly crackdown on the protest where hundreds of people died. However, it is remembered as a pivotal moment in Korea's history of democracy, and that is uh, what is perhaps celebrated in the musical. Uh, did you have any concerns when you saw perhaps the uh, more darker elements of the story and more perhaps uh, politically sensitive elements of the story? I think uh, we, we certainly had some concerns um, or I had personal concerns that I, it doesn't, it's not my culture and it's not my story. Mm. Um, but then looking into the story and, and sharing and reading further into it, it, it is everyone's story. We, this is still going on and oppression is still going on across the world. Um, from January 6th, you know, here in America to um, the women in Iran and students in Iran. We, this is happening across our, our world um, time and time again. So the stories and the resonance of this musical, you know, really are universal. And um, the musical captures so many, like, beautiful moments and uh, terrible and wonderful and also, like, the joy in a painful moment um the musical is really complex and i think that is as a theater artist is really inspiring wow indeed uh yes there are of course uh, universal uh, parallels that can be seen in uh, other countries as well uh, and then the english adaptation involved yourself uh, with uh, music directed by Andy Rollinson, featuring 15 New York-based actors and a 14-piece orchestra. Uh, the original musical is a full 160-minute long musical, but for this special showcase, it was changed into a one-hour gala concert. What was the process of the adapt uh, adaptation like? Did you face any difficulties? Well, we had a three-hour musical that we had to combine into <laughs> 45 minutes mm. <laughs> um, in, in a matter of two weeks. Wow. Um, and it was the first time that the production was done in English. So we had an English translation. We had several different... It was a really incredible collaboration 
between multiple continents. Um, so what was great about it is everyone wanted it to happen. So it was very tight turnaround. It was a very intense process, but uh, there was something about this material and the urgency and sort of the passion behind the project that really kept everyone on multiple continents um, really pushing for this project to happen. So I, uh, you know, certainly there were a few sleepless nights mm. of saying, how do we shift the cultural perspectives um, so that there's more context in our world, in an American Western perspective? Um, and, and also understand sort of contextually. So we just sort of moved some things around. Um, the composers were really gracious and um, they were very willing to say, yeah, actually let's move that song to another part of the show um, where it actually feels, uh, you know, more in context um, because we don't understand certainly the complexities of the political structures. Mm. Um, and so we really focused on sort of the more um, universal elements of the story. Uh, it's a it's a fictionalized, um, you know, narrative through a historical event. So all of the things that are pictured in the production are happened and real. Mm. Um, they're just sort of like, you know, dramatized. Sure. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I think the the biggest challenge was that there's such a wealth of material there and a wealth of a story that we wanted to pare it down and also bring forth some of this beautiful music. Sure, I imagine it must have been a challenge. Uh, but then what was the response like? Oh, I mean, that that makes it all worth it. The response was really beautiful. Um, it was a one night concert. It was sold out. Uh, certainly standing ovations, but also like a great deal of reflection. And you always know when you leave the theater um, and people are talking and people are staying around the theater, that that's a good sign mm. that people are moved by the material. And, you know, otherwise people zip right out and they're like, <laughs> this show was nothing, whatever. This show... On the other hand, really, people stayed and from it really brought a lot of different cultures together that night. Well, it sounds amazing and really encouraging. Uh, as we said, the showcase was a one-off uh, gala concert, but uh, do you see Kwangju making overseas at all? I know so far there's no immediate news of any uh, future productions, but what do you think? I think that this was the seed that needed to be planted. A New York production and sort of planting the seed for an international run of this show um, and sort of dealing with the complexities of, of fitting into a New York model. Um, it takes a very long time to build a show. Mm. Absolutely. This musical is bound for bigger things and for Broadway and touring um, audiences across the world. Uh, it just sort of needs, we, we have to workshop it a few more times mm. um, and really, you know, finesse some of the materials. And working with the composers, we had a wonderful dinner afterwards um, where we were all saying, 
we love this new version. Let's try to focus some new material. Let's bring, you know, uh, they also have a treasure trove of old material that didn't make it into the show that might be more appropriate for our new version. And basically, you know, they it goes through different iterations. And um, it, it's really exciting. This is, it's actually a really exciting process. And do you see yourself being involved in that uh, process as well moving forward? Absolutely. Can you hear from my... <laughs> my uh, excitement sure. absolutely uh it's it's a really fun it, it's so rare that we get to work with such incredible minds and um and actually you know enjoy one another and also the differences of culture um it's been really wonderful to to learn from one another um i couldn't be more thankful to live incorporated for helping us you know build this um and the and demo kim uh, uh, you know his answer for things was yes mm. and it's that's rare in the theater business um when we say can we do this can we do this often you have so many different parameters put on top of you um whereas this one was a really open open world and we were able to bring in so many different perspectives and we had this multi-international Asian cast who also informed a lot of the material Mm. Um, and so like I said I'm the party bus driver (laughs) I am not necessarily the Wizard of Oz when I direct a show It, it to me especially in a culture that I you know deeply respect but I don't hail from um I I'm there as a guest and I'm there to sort of facilitate this amazing you know synergy sure it sounds like a english language a full adaptation of the musical uh, could be coming soon uh, and hopefully we will see an english version of it someday but uh, you've played a key part in getting it this far and that is something i'm sure the people yeah. of Gwangju and uh, many here in korea will be a very appreciative of you being part of that team that has planted this seed it is quite something uh, mr rasmussen we appreciate yeah. you talking to us today it's been a pleasure we've been talking to creative director and producer andrew rasmussen for touch basins hall thank you once again for your time Thank you. I'm cellist Saul Daniel Kim, and you're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Welcome back now to our final part of the show, a morning edition preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is back in the studio with us again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, General. OK, so what do you have for us first? First is Park Council's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times, and it's about the rapper Mino. Our listeners who like K-pop might know of him, as he is one of the members of the group Winner. He has also created solo songs and can be found on Korean TV quite often. Mm. Well, the article talks about another career path that he is currently going down, and that is art. 
Yes, so he is an artist. I believe he is a painter. Yes. Uh, how long has he been working on this path? Since 2019, under the alias Onim, which is his name spelled backwards. Right. <laughs> he has participated in several shows, including the special exhibition for emerging artists in 2019, and was one of the main artists that opened this year's Start Art Fair, held at Saatchi Gallery in London last month. He won the Visual and Cultural Global Eye Award 2021 there. Interesting. So he is... Uh... Uh, an up-and-coming artist, it seems, with some promise. Does the article then talk about his uh, future plans as an artist? It does, actually. Mino has an exhibition really soon. At the end of the year, from December 16th until January 15th, 2023, he will have his first solo exhibition, Thanking You, at the Start Plus in Seoul's Songdong district. Mino plans to show around 20 oil and acrylic paintings that attempt to capture the layers of mixed emotions on canvas through bold colour blocks and shapes. The exhibition will be divided into three themes, emotional growth, self-awakening, and harmony and hope. Yes, sadly, it does look like that exhibition will take on new levels of meaning for Minua as well, as the tragic news came through yesterday that his father had passed away. Our condolences go out to Minua and his family. OK, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Park Ga-young sat down with Yang Bang-on, a composer, pianist and producer who was born and raised in Japan but holds Korean citizenship. The interview, which you can find in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald, goes into detail about the 62-year-old's interest in life in Korea. Yang actually is celebrating the 25th anniversary of his debut this year. Wow, 25 years. That is a long career. Uh, before we go into his anniversary plans, let's uh, briefly talk about his life and his career. Can you tell us more? Sure. Yang was born in Tokyo in 1960 with a North Korean nationality. The article mentions that he was a medical student originally, but made the career change and became a producer, composer and band member. His debut album, The Gate of Dream, came out in 1996. It is an album of instrumental music featuring a mix of piano music, gugak and pop music. Yang was able to obtain South Korean nationality in 1999 and came to Korea to expand his music career outside of Japan. Right, so this year he is celebrating the 25th anniversary of his debut. Yes. Uh, does he have any special plans for this milestone then? He does. Yang released a vinyl record set and will hold two concerts next month. His concert, titled Neo Utopia 2022, will take place on December 3rd and 4th at the National Theatre of Korea. The concerts will feature musicians from both Korea and Japan, including vocalist Ha Hyun Woo and drummer Senri Kawaguchi. The article goes into so much more detail about Yang's life and music, so it's quite worth a read. Indeed. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview today. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we call it a day today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to KBS World Radio. KBS World Radio is Korea's flagship international broadcaster airing in 11 languages. The English service of KBS World Radio broadcasts news, music shows and more on various platforms including shortwave radio, satellite radio and online. Visit our website at world.kbs.co.kr where you can find the latest news and stream all of our content. We are also available on mobile. To listen to our 24-hour service or our programs wherever you are, download the KBS Kong app 
or KBS World Radio on-air app onto your smartphone. We also want to hear from you. Visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash English KBS and email us at english at kbs.co.kr to let us know your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.